Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 828 with Ken McGarry. Surprise restaurant manager is all of us. It's all of us that were uh, bartenders or servers or hosts of security. And somebody handed you the keys and said, hey, do you mind locking up? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Plate IQ card. With Plate IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save 25% off implementation. Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people, and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, Unstoppable listeners, you get three months 
absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder, this podcast needs your support. One of the ways you can support this show is by sharing it with people in your network. And today, we're talking about becoming a first-time manager. If you know any first-time managers out there, please share this episode with them and be sure to tag me, Eric Cacciatore, at Eric Cacciatore, so I can say thank you personally. And we're actually talking to Ken McGarry. So Ken McGarry is the author of the Surprise Restaurant Manager, and he was recently on the show, and I had such a great time talking to Ken when I was in Chicago that I said, well, you know, you need to come back. We need to get you back to dive deeper into this idea of being a first-time manager. So today, we're going to dive into the six rules for first-time managers, and you hear me say a lot on the show that if we can transform the industry, we can transform the world. And I think that the way we're going to transform the world is one person at a time. Uh, we transfer, we transform one owner at a time, then they transform their employees. And it's really with our first time managers and these people that we're trying to de- develop that we have the most opportunity to transform the industry and transform the world. It starts from the inside out. It starts from us making impressions on the people that we come to, in contact with every day and, and who's more important than our our frontline managers, the people that uh, we are replacing ourselves with, right? Uh, we need to inject values into them. We need to give them the skills they need to be successful. And this episode is going to help you do that. So with no further ado, here it is, Ken McGeary on the six rules for first-time managers. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest. He is the author of the surprise restaurant manager and the co-founder of Corgan hospitality and his claim to fame is being on the second city marquee during the the book release of his book the surprise restaurant manager back on the show on the show for a second time ken mcgeary ken are you feeling unstoppable today completely unstoppable Great to see you again, Eric. How you been? Dude, it is a pleasure to have you back. I'm doing great. This is uh, your second time on the show, like we mentioned. If you want, if you guys want to go check out his first episode, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 806. Uh, that's kind of Ken's come up story. We discussed how he got to where he is today. But today, we're, we're going deep into his book, which we mentioned in the first episode. But we really didn't pull back the layers on it. So we're going to kind of unpackage some of the elements of your book. We're going to be calling this the six rules for all first time managers. And I cannot wait to dive in, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? You can do anything in this world that you're big enough to do. You can do anything in this world that you're big enough to do. What do you mean by Quick. that? So my first job out of college was writing for a newspaper in Southern Oklahoma. And the publisher was this incredibly gregarious, positive, straightforward person. But he also knew that he was the publisher of the only newspaper in the, in the uh, town. So when we went to go cover something in city hall, he literally pulled up on the lawn and I said, are you allowed to do that? And his answer is, you can do anything in the world that you're big enough to do. And I thought, I kind of like that. So, so how does that speak to you? How do you use that mantra in your life? 
it means that you have to, you have to bring a you have to bring a a level of yeah I I own this I can do this and it's not arrogance it's not being immodest it's hey if there's an ability to do this I'm going to be the person to make that happen it's almost tricking yourself right yeah and like, oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah. You're telling yourself you can do it even even though you probably shouldn't or maybe maybe not be, be able to do it but you tell yourself you can so i love it man. great yeah. way to get this thing started so we're covering six rules for first-time managers and before we get into it just real quick what was your what was the reason for writing this book i know we touched on it the first time around but in case our listeners did not catch that episode what is the the surprise restaurant manager Surprise restaurant manager is all of us. It's all of us that were uh, bartenders or servers or hosts of security. And somebody handed you the keys and said, hey, do you mind locking up? Or, hey, do you mind throwing out some drawers in the morning? And the next thing you do, you're filling out schedules. And then you're managing people. And you find yourself in a management role with absolutely zero training. Yeah. And the number. And the number of times I'm asked the same questions by managers that have never had any training forced me to sit down and write all the questions I've ever been asked out and write all the things I wish I would have known. Yes. And it's it's this reason right here why, you know, the Restaurant Unstoppable's mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. When I say transform the industry, this is one of the things that comes to mind. We, I mean, we not only transform the industry, but transform the world. And one of the reasons why I think we have the ability to transform the world is because we, so many first time managers were first time managers in the restaurant industry. We really get to influence the next generation of professionals because their first experience to the workforce is the restaurant industry. We, we get to mold the next generation of professionals. And when I think of that, I mean, we get to inject values. We get to in- inject just business savviness. We have so much influence over the future. You know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah. what, what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? I, it's just the passion of why we do what we do. And if anything, in the last 18 months, the people that are still standing and the people that are still in this industry do it because they love it, mm-hmm. do it because they're absolutely driven by the passion of it. And it reminds me why I chose to be in the restaurant industry. And so many people say, oh, I fell into it. But at some point, whether or not you admit it, you made a decision. And I and I'm reminded now often what it is that makes me so damn happy about being in the restaurant industry. Yeah, I love it. And I think it's also just having the mindset too that you're not just training a new manager, you're you're training you're you're influencing the future. You know, whatever values, whatever habits, whatever standards you can inject into this person while they're still young and influential or what's the word? Not influential, but um easily influenced. There's a word for that. Mm-hmm. What's the, there's another word. Mold, moldable, moldable maybe, or uh, uh, is that a, I don't know. It'll come to me later, but I don't, I don't know. There's just a lot of power in this industry and I want to make sure people are aware of that power that we have. And if we are aware of it, we can really be intentional with mentoring and, and sculpting the future. Uh, and I think that's something that we all just need to kind of be aware of. So with that said, we're going to be covering the six rules of first time managers. What is the first rule? Just take it away. Uh, you know, I wrote, you, 
You're going to have to read it out because I wrote it and I sent it to you. So okay. give me my first one. So I, I shorten these rules down to, to I love it. like a little height. Yeah. See, so. this, is why I, this is why I like you so much. You just you take my big, long, verbose stuff and you shrink it down. So <laughs> the first number rule, one, don't become an elitist. What do you mean by that? Oh, my gosh. The minute that you become a manager, there's a very good possibility that you are now managing people that you used to work alongside. And so everyone's looking at you like, why did you get this job? And you have to figure out how to be able to motivate people that 10 minutes ago, you were working literally right right alongside. And because of that, that because I said so, that elitist attitude is so easy to adopt. And you're not walking into a place to change the world 10 minutes after you start. You're walking in to realize how you're going to be able to make a difference. The best way that you can do that is to keep your mouth shut and your ears open and to try to keep your ego in check. Yeah, that was a word that was like hovering in my head right there is keeping your ego in check, not kind of not believing your hype um, or your success because it will go to your head. Uh, so what things can you do? Are there any like, like checks and balances to keep you honest to, to, to check your ego? What advice do you have? The best way to check your ego is to realize that the, the less ego that you bring, the more results you ever have. The more times that I will go into a situation and ask for help or come into it with the idea of taking advice from anyone for any reason that because a good answer could come from anywhere um, is how I usually find the best answer. And it's rarely comes from me. If it comes from how to improve the server station, how to uh, improve the buster schedule, whatever that is, I'm not the I'm not the person who has the answer. Uh, the servers do. Mm-hmm. The busters do. Mm-hmm. And you just become that person. But just because you've got a title doesn't mean that somehow that you've become better. If anything, you've just got yourself that many more people that you have to support and take care of and make sure that uh, you are doing that effectively. Do you think uh, the a leader is the same thing as a manager? No, I think anybody can be a manager. I don't think anybody can be a leader. Yeah. And I I think the reason why I'm asking this question is I think when you think of what the essence of a manager is, it's somebody who keeps things in order, right? Their job is to put things back in place and make sure people are upholding the culture and the standards that you set forth, right? So Mm -hmm. the reason why I'm saying this is because I feel like you can kind of check your ego if you remember your job is to, to keep things organized. And if you manage, if you focus on managing the process and the standards, I think you're, you're, it kind of will take your ego out of it. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that that's a, a very succinct and correct response. I think as long as you bring an ego, no one's going to want to follow that. No, no one looks at somebody who's arrogant and says, wow, this, this is the person I want to be. A part of being a true leader is to create an environment that people want to aspire to. That's why I get so frustrated with managers who work themselves into the ground and announce to everybody how many hours that they're working, because all they're doing is guaranteeing that nobody around them wants to do their job. Part of make being a leader is to make your life and what you do attractive to others 
so that they have careers and it helps build the industry. Yeah. There's a really great book out there. And I think when it comes to like, don't become an elitist, it really comes down to check your ego. Don't let your, your ego overrun, you know, your conscious, like, you know, just don't let that ego swell too much. But the, there's a book out there called ego is the enemy. And I think it's a, it's a great book for anybody who's, you know, becoming a manager to check out because it really the big takeaway for me in that book is focus on the work just do the work and if you focus on the work and you don't you know i don't know what i'm trying to say but you're picking up what i'm putting down right now i am and i believe nick <laughs> saban actually uh talked about that book in a, a recent uh thing that i watched so i you're now the second person that i've heard talking about that exact book so now now i know i have to read it yeah it's a good but, one man you, but you 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 definitely have to release yourself from feeling like you have any more knowledge than anybody else. Cause the reality is that you don't. I love that. And okay. I think we can move on to the second rule unless there's anything else you want to unpackage with that first rule. Oh, let's move on to number two. All right. That second rule we have is avoid discovery based learning. What do you mean by that? So I talk a lot about this in the book about how discovery based learning works. If you walk into a room of people that don't know you, and you're trying to get them to follow or get on your side or help to work together as a team, there is definitely the idea of using discovery-based learning, which is to say, hey, there's a problem. Let's work together to figure out the solution. And even though you might already know the answer, you're allowing other people to come to that solution so that they feel that they have buy-in. The challenge With using discovery-based learning, if you're a freshman manager, now managing the people that you just were working with, now they're going to look at you and go, why are you asking me this question? Shouldn't you know? Isn't this your – because the whole time, that first 90 days, they're judging, why did you get this – why are you in this position? Why did you choose to do this? And why do you feel that you can tell me what to do? So you've now moved – 10 minutes ago, you might have been their best friend, but now whether you know it or not, you become into some sort of weird opposition and your best move is to avoid all aspects of looking as though that you're incapable, but also not spending a lot of time trying to be everybody's buddy. And because being the buddy manager gets you absolutely nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I I'm kind of being reminded of a lesson I picked up, uh, when I was training to become a commercial pilot, all the flight instructors would almost all their answer to any question we would ask would be, I don't know. You tell me. And the reason for that was because they wanted us to get to the point where we could be empowered to go find the answer. Because when you're in an airplane by yourself and you have your stack of books next to you and you need the answer for something, you need to know where to find the answer because you're not going to have a flight instructor to ask. But this point, I, I, and so I I guess what I'm saying is I I see that the benefit in empowering people to find the answer on their own, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, if you never have the answer, it's going to make you kind of look like somebody who doesn't really know what the hell they're doing. And you're just kind of faking it till you make it. And that's not going to help you get the respect and rapport you, you need. Is that one especially, especially if you're a first time manager and you're managing people who know you. Yeah. Yes. So that is it's very challenging in that in that specific instance. Um, whereas I'm somebody who will 
absolutely ask questions. I will be the first to admit that I don't know the answer. And sometimes I will even do that in deference to seeing if other people know the answer by admitting that I might not know that just to, to empower others to feel like that they're a part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think you do have to find that balance of letting people know that, listen, like I don't have to be the person to give you all the answers. (laughs) The answers you're looking for are in the operations manual. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I think there's a, that, that balance of empowering people to, to teach them how to think for themselves and how to get the answers for themselves. But when do you know it's time to, to not answer and time to answer? Like, how do you prioritize that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with whether or not you're creating processes that are going to fix something long-term versus helping out in the short run. Okay. If you find yourself very in the middle of a rush and you need to help seat people and go talk to tables in the in an unexpected rush every once in a while, that's fine to roll up your sleeves and go do that. Versus when you find that there's always a push at seven o'clock and there's always a jam up with the kitchen, then you have to start looking at how to fix those things and to delegate by by coming up with answers. Because that's truly what a manager is supposed to be doing is coming up with long term solutions, because otherwise everything you're doing is you're just filling in as yet another set of hands and likely not nearly as skilled as the person who's next to you has been doing it longer. So when I read this uh, bullet point that you share with us, one of the, 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 the second of the sixth rules for first time managers, which again is avoid discovery based learning. My initial thought was you want to be as proactive as possible to know and understand the regulations because it only takes one mistake of doing something illegally once to get in trouble. Right? So that was kind of my first impression. Um, so you don't want to learn on the go because sometimes you learn the hard way, which is when you make the mistake, right? So I guess the question I am, I'm where I'm leading to with this is where do people go to to learn the non-negotiables of being a manager, like the regulatory stuff, like you know uh, when it comes to questions around tip pooling and labor man, like actually labor and like overworking and sexual harassment and HR and things like that. Is there like a one-stop shop, a place to go where you can kind of get like a list of like, just like things you need to know as a manager? I mean, there are definitely, there are federal websites you can go to, to go check on, uh, you know, you can look at the EEOC and come up with all of the covered characteristics that you cannot discuss during any sort of part of the hiring training uh, employment process. There are definitely you can go into uh, federal wage, uh, federal labor and wage uh, websites in order to figure out different hiring processes. But as far as being able to maneuver a lot of the psychology of it, that's kind of one of the reasons I put the the book together was just very simply a lot of that was just kind of left to my own devices. You terminate somebody and you don't realize that there's a logic and an art to actually doing that. And by, you know, and realizing that you don't have to give a litany of reasons for why you're doing something. You're simply communicating information in the most compassionate and empathetic way possible. But no website's going to teach you that. Just trial and error, and hopefully some mentors along the way can help. 
Yeah, I think the chapter that you just referenced was chapter 12, how to avoid HR. Uh, yeah, how to avoid HR is uh, the, how to avoid HR is uh, overestimated familiarity. That says everything to do with when you feel that you can have a conversation with somebody or address them in a way that they absolutely do not appreciate. And I last week, just last week, was helping out a restaurant and had this exact same thing happen to where a manager, uh, somebody got a haircut and he had got this big mustache and somebody was like, hey, what's up, stash? And, And literally that was his boss. And the guy was upset about it. And I happened to walk by and I was like, what's going on? He's like, the manager made fun of my, my mustache. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he says, yeah, that, that's, I feel really bad about that. And I, and I thought, yep, that's because he felt that he was trying to be funny. But the reality is, is that that mustache meant something to him. And he thought he was pulling it off. Now, he wasn't. It was it was a terrible looking mustache. But it's not <laughs> it's your job to say that or to make somebody feel like that at their at their workplace. So <clears throat> overestimated familiarity has everything to do with communicating with people in a more casual manner than is at all appropriate. And that isn't to say in restaurants that we all don't you know, we all bust balls. We all give each other nicknames. We all do that. But there has to be that mutual understanding that that's good or else you're putting yourself at risk. Yeah. And there, one of the, the things I did love about your book is that you do kind of just drop these like little nuggets of like things you literally just cannot say during a job interview that you would have never otherwise known unless somebody told you this and taught you this. And there's things like that scattered throughout the role of a restaurant manager of things you just cannot do or say uh, when it comes down to just like legal issues. Right. So another great reason to pick up this book, but onto the third rule Unless there's anything else you want to unpackage with that second rule of avoiding oh, discovery you, baseline. You just keep on going. You're, All right. You jab. We're on number three, and that is eyes open, mouth closed. Oh, keep your God. eyes open and, it, and your mouth closed. And this is not just for freshman managers. This is for every manager in every job ever. When you start a job, your first 30 days, you're going to see 100 things that are wrong. You're going to see how the place is done and go, oh, my God, I can't believe that they do this. I can't believe that this is how they're uh, packing their cooler. I can't believe that this is how they're not staggering their labor. Uh, It doesn't matter what it is. All these things are going to come to your head and you're going to think, oh, I can make such great difference. But the fact is, in the first 30 days, no one's going to listen to you because your job is to figure out how things are being done. But you don't want to lose sight of that because in 30 days, you're going to forget all that stuff because it's going to feel very, very normal. Day one, you walk in and you see all the backs of the bar stools are scuffed. And you're going to say, geez, why doesn't somebody just go through and take some furniture polish and, and, do, and do something about that? By day 30, you won't care. You will, you will totally forget that. So for the first 30 days, write every thing down that you could possibly think of and keep your mouth shut. And then at day 30, ask somebody to sit down, have a conversation and then pick the top 10 things. Don't go through the litany of the 200. Keep some of those in your back pocket as you're continuing on, but you're going to find those top things 
that you're going to start tackling and focusing. And if you do that over those next few months, you're going to show your value by saying, I've recognized this, I've got a solution, and this is what we're going to do to change that. Yeah. I feel like this this rule of eyes open, mouth shut, or mouth close is especially important for a manager who maybe is a first time manager in a new restaurant. I mean, if, if they were like, if they were, were hired from the outside to come in and be a manager, this is especially important because you don't know the culture. You don't know who's who you still don't know all the systems and processes and, and procedures yourself. So especially if you're new to an organization, just like first seek to understand, then seek to be understood. And I think I'd even go beyond 30 days, you know, like there's that, that onboarding trial period of, you know, shadowing, especially if you're a manager and you have to lead, you have to know that business inside and out. Yeah. And I mean, and we've all been in that situation to where you have that manager comes in and he immediately starts trash talking. I can't believe that this is how this is. This is the, uh, this, yeah, I'm going to totally change this. I'm going to make things different. Yeah. Was that, and that, that person sucks. Yeah, we that, just we just we had, know that person. Yeah, we just had Sanjeev Rostin uh, on the show, and I and I I listened to his episode uh, to kind of refresh because we had him back to do some peer mentoring, and he gets into that. Like when you're new to an organization, your job is to just understand as much as possible. First, seek to understand, then seek to be understood. One of those seven habits of highly effective people. One of my favorite, and uh, it's. You can't over you can't overemphasize that. Uh, it's a good way to lose friends, even there though you're not no trying doubt. to make friends at work. But it's a good way to lose followers, I should say. Yes. Uh, any other key elements relative to eyes open, mouth closed? No, I just think that that's that's probably good advice for life, but definitely for management and any position, you you can't change culture without understanding what it is first. Yes. One quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now I've told you what's new with play IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with play IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies with bill pay. You can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill. And this is all happening online. So no more paper checks. Play IQ bill pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check ACH or play IQ card. Also with play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right. No more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, 
you get an alert. And then lastly, there's Play IQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to. No more duplications of efforts and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. We're back and we're moving on to the fourth rule, which is distance yourself socially. This has got to be hard for a lot of people. Why is that Very so important? Hard. Well, again, especially if you are in a situation to where you're managing people that you used to work alongside, it is so tough to now say, well, yeah, I'm going to put myself in a bad situation if I'm only hanging out with this member, these members of the staff, because you're automatically going to be seen as playing favorites. Uh, there's also that desire when you start a new place, even if you don't know everybody to start hanging out with them socially, because you think that you're breaking down barriers and you're making yourself uh, more uh, approachable. And all of those things are actually undermining you because they are simply putting you in a situation to where the people who aren't there, whether it's because they weren't invited or because for whatever reason, maybe they don't drink, but you're taking everybody out to a bar and they don't feel comfortable going. Next thing that you're going to run into is people who will think that you're playing favorites and you, you kind of are. And that's a real huge issue. And I know that it's impossible to say, there's so many places that say you're absolutely mandatorily not supposed to hang out with staff. And I would be a huge hypocrite to say that I don't do it because I absolutely do it. But I make sure that I invite absolutely everybody front of the house, back of the house, managers, whomever I make sure to make a do it days in advance and I make sure to pay for it. And that's because I don't ever want to be in a position to where somebody picks up my tab because, again, now I've lost power because somebody else is in control of it. So I'll come out. I'll say, hey, everyone, I'll meet you all out for a drink at O'Callahan's. We're all going to go. I'll have uh, two rounds. I'll pick up tab, and then I'll say, hey, good luck, everybody. Make it home safe. And then that's it. And so There's some big that- lessons here that I'm pulling out. If you do want to, for like morale, have an event uh, outside of work, the the key elements is make sure you invite everybody. Uh, don't you know get into a little belt bubble. You know don't the, don't segregate yourself into the corner with like the three people you like to work with. Make sure you're spreading your attention around everybody. Uh, cover the tab and be gone after two drinks. Is like I think the big takeaway I got from that. Are there, is there anything I'm missing? No, the the big on after two drinks is really the most important simply because the minute that they can tell stories about you and be like, oh, Ken was hammered. Did you see what he did? Well, good luck in being able to manage them. Yeah. It's it just becomes that much more of a of, of an issue. And don't get me wrong. After a good long 12, 14 hour days on the floor, yeah, a shift drink at the end of the night is nice. And I've been known to have uh, my uh, glass, but I make sure everybody in the restaurant, because it's funny how the bartender will always remember to have a chef drink and he'll bring one up to the manager, but they might not bring it to the guy who's in dish, who's working hardest to make sure, or the person who's cleaning or anybody else. And what you're doing is once again, you're creating environments to where people feel excluded. So if you're going to do those things, include everyone or don't do it at all. Yeah. And I think I lean, I personally lean in the direction of 
of socializing with your your team of making it more intimate i think the world we live in today is very transactional you know i think that's a lot of what's missing in today's society uh is because of legal things and you know you gotta you gotta be careful what happens outside of work like we we cut ourselves short and we don't have as meaningful of a relationship we as we could have with the people that we're shoulder to shoulder with every day but there is that balance absolutely that you have to find where you you don't want to become too intimate you know, but at the same time, you do want your people to know that you care for them and you enjoy them, right? And you want to be able to, 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 you know, literally act that out. And you know, actions speak louder than the words. If you're picking up what I'm putting down, I do. And but and not to go off on a weird tangent here, but I'm you know 50 years old, and at this point, that'd be me hanging out with 25 year olds. And so, in doing so there's already that weird sort of level of, Hey, I'm trying to be cool and hip and hang out with 25 year olds. But more importantly, I realize that I have a responsibility as a 50 year old uh, white male, simply because a lot of us came up in the industry with a lot of people who were pretty brutal and not really welcoming. And I have an absolute responsibility to be, for lack of a better term, a, um, a, a, I, I, I don't want to say uh, mentor, but at least some sort of a role model. So I don't want to be that person who goes out and gets drunk. I don't want to be the person who says something to where it makes somebody feel inappropriate or, or made to feel inferior or small. I don't want to be seen as lecturous. I don't want to be that person who overstays their welcome. I want to be the person who very simply is a standard of, hey, you know what? There are a few good restaurant people out there because as we all know, there are a lot of really not great restaurant people out there. Yeah. So if you are on the younger spectrum, you know, you're 25 years old, uh, you're great at your job, you get the, the, the promotion, you've been working at this place for three or five years, whatever, and mm-hmm. you're friends with everybody. You, you used to go out all the time and stay for five or six drinks. How, how, like, what advice do you have for that person to transition away from that lifestyle, being a part of the party, to now not being able to, now that you're taking on more responsibility? What's that transition like? If you're unwilling to stop, which when I was made a manager at 29 running a nightclub in Chicago and every single one of my friends also worked in the same club and I didn't stop, I didn't go home after two drinks, um, I realized very quickly that I had to put rules that said, hi, I have to be manager Ken at this point. I have to be able to manage it by by addressing certain things and we have to be very open about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And if you function outside of the boundaries of your position, then I'm going to have to call you out on that. And just because you and I are friends doesn't mean that I can't do that. And that has worked to a certain point, but I spent the majority of my life trying to be liked. And that is such a weakness in management, spending a lot of time really desperately wanting people to like you and think that you're fun and good and, oh, what a nice person. All those things are wonderful and who wouldn't want to be liked? But it's more important to be respected and to have somebody feel like they're looking out for you 
professionally and that they carry themselves in a way to where you're happy to work with them. And the, the minute you get away from trying to be liked and focus a lot more on what it is to be respected, it changes your entire focus. Mm. And if you, if you got into it, I might've missed it, but what is the key element, the thing that you can do differently to focus, to pivot from focusing on being liked to focus on being respected? What's the difference between being liked and respected? Being liked is uh, not wanting to do anything that's going to ruffle anybody else's feathers, uh, walking on eggshells, uh, being very cautious of, oh, I want to make absolutely sure that, you know, that somebody else doesn't feel, oh, the, and it's this, it's this way of being timid in your communication. I talk a lot about blunt criticism, and I'm not a person who spends a lot of time providing massively blunt criticism, but I'm surrounded by owners and operators who live in that world of massively blunt criticism of this is what this is and this is how it is and blank, blank, blank. And I've learned to embrace that a lot more simply because I know it's honest. Mm. And sometimes when we're trying to be nice, we're caging it and we're trying, we're not being a hundred percent forthright. So the kindness is never lost, but the honesty is required. All right. So that wraps up rule number four, distance yourself socially. Rule number five, advocate success. What do you mean by that? Uh, say You say that again? I, I summarize your words. You put, So rule number five for you is don't just be an advocate for staff. The staff yes. be an advocate for the success of the business. Okay, correct. So there's... When you become a manager, there's a very big tendency to start going to the owners and saying, oh, like, you know what? We need to make sure that we're doing this for the staff. And you become this like elevated person that is speaking on behalf of the team, which if there are things that need to be adjusted, of course, that is there's a value in that. But if you are truly looking at being a manager and being a leader, you have to look at the restaurant as a whole, mm. because let's say that um, servers are upset that they don't have bigger sections. Oh, my gosh. Well, your challenge is that it's taking 10 minutes for people to get greet times. And even though your staff very well might feel that if we could only, you know, <laughs> cut two or three people a day, then we would make more money and that would be better for us. It wouldn't be better for the business necessarily. So you have to think of things and the way of how they function for the business as much as for everyone involved. But that isn't to say that you can't address that exact situation by figuring out who can handle more sections and who cannot. And then figuring out ways to train people in order to become better at what they're doing. So if there were a four table section before how to get them to where that they could take extra tables, there's all of those things are possible, but the automatic, the minute you become a manager, you don't just become this mouthpiece for what the staff all rallies to say. And that's not an anti-staff sentiment. It's a, you have to think of, business as a whole you know staff might want to close at 10 o'clock but you know that the theater crowd's going to come in at 10 30 and so you're going to stay open simply because you know that the minute that you close early 
that the aircraft will never come. So you make those decisions sometimes based on the business versus what the staff wants. So how do you get the entire staff to advocate for the success of the business? You like anything else, if you just tell people what to do, they won't do it and they won't find any value to it. So a lot of it is focused on, well, these are the things that we're trying to accomplish. And what is an, what is a good timeline to determining whether or not it's going to work? A perfect example is yeah, the number of times I've seen people who put together Sunday uh bloody bars and they put a huge bloody Mary mixes and they, you can go along and everyone puts on all their different things and they put out a bloody and they, and then they market it, come in, get all you can drink bloody Mary's. They do that for like three weeks and then it doesn't work. And then the staff goes, well, this isn't working. And then the manager goes, well, we're losing money. And then they close it and it goes away. Well, you didn't give it any time to actually truly catch to where people go, oh, you know what? Last month I tried that. Maybe I'll try that again in a month or a month or two. So any of these ideas or plans that you're doing, whether it's to extend hours to get to a theater crowd or launch different specials or to engage a happy hour, you can explain with your team the logic of what that's going to how that's going to work, but also set forth the parameters of understanding that if it's not successful in three weeks, we're not going to abandon it. It, your minimum for doing anything should be six months because it's going to take that long for people to go, oh, yeah, the Sunday brunch over at that place is amazing. You have to go check that out because by that time, it becomes something that people know to be a thing. But you, without communicating that to staff and just saying, ah, we're going to do this, and they all stand around on Sunday and no one shows up. Of course, they're going to get discouraged. I mean, yeah. Of course, they're not going to be a part of it. What I'm, what's going through my mind listening to you talk is this idea that it's not enough to explain what to do. It's you have to also explain the why behind it. And make without sure, question. and I think that the the role of the manager, yes, is to keep things in place to manage the systems, the processes, the standards, but it's also the same. Can be, it's, you know, it's their job to also be the culture carrier. You know, so they are. You know, they embody the, the the core values, the vision, the mission of the restaurant because the owner injected that into the manager, and now the manager's job is to echo that throughout the staff, right? So, be the culture carrier and get excited about all these little things like the the whys, like make it about make it the game of business, right? Like in in in. in be the carrier of that mindset of like, Hey, we're here to be a better version of ourselves today than we were yesterday. And how can we do that? Right. And, and how can we constantly improve and how, how can you be that culture carrier is kind of what's going through my mind. That's exactly why I'm such a proponent of sharing as much as humanly possible with the staff. I love places that put the PL on a chalkboard in the middle of the, uh, of the kitchen. I love places that do profit sharing and have an understanding with the staff of exactly what it looks like to run a business and where the, the challenges are. So then when you're trying things out that maybe don't seem to be working in the beginning, you're doing so because it's an attempt to try to recover in a point to where you're not making any money. And by having that open dialogue and that open communication with your staff, then at the very bare minimum, they understand the reasons for why you're choosing to do those things. And you're not just 
randomly deciding to be brutal by staying open an act an hour later. You're doing it with this direct targeting uh, coupled with marketing and all these other things. Beautiful. Okay. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to bust out the sixth rule of first time managers. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work, let's be honest. Not to mention it's time consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing, and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? Not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic, mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. 
We're back, and we're going to bust out the sixth and final rule, then open it up for Q&A. And that last rule is meal etiquette. Have meal etiquette as a manager. What do you mean by that? So it goes without saying that the most important aspect, the thing that you were, your job as a manager is to support your staff, be there for your team, help promote positivity, and give them a reason for why why they want to, to be there versus the thousands of other restaurants that are currently hiring. And one of the biggest things that I see all the time that drives me completely insane is managers who will go in and just sit down at the bar and have somebody ring in their manager meal for them, which is completely lazy because you know how to go to a POS and ring in your manager meal, but you don't, you just have somebody else do that for you. And then you eat your meal and then somebody clears your dish for you. You know exactly where the dish pit is, but you don't, you just have somebody do that for you because somehow now that you're a manager, you're entitled to not have to do these things. You're above it's, that it's, work, right? You're above that. You are above that now. And somebody does that for it. And don't get me wrong. You have a lot of people who are like, Oh, please, please. I'm happy to do this for you. And you don't let them do it. Bring in your own shit. Go to your own dish pit, clean up everything, handle yourself for yourself. Because they're there to serve the guests. They're not there to serve you. And most importantly, and I still do this to this day with every single restaurant I go to, um, walk to the chef on duty. I walk up. I come from the may I speak world. So I walk up and say, may I speak, chef? And chef will say yes. And I'll say, is it all right that I put in my manager meal? And I don't ring in anything in any venue that I have without asking chef to make sure because there's nothing worse than a manager throwing in a manager meal in the middle of a time to where the kitchen might be struggling or might be trying to recover. It just shows massive disrespect. And when you function in those ways to where other people are serving you and other people are clearing your plates and they're cooking your food whenever you want, you're just putting a huge wedge between you and them and saying, look, I'm elitist. I have ego. And then you, there's a very good reason that no one will follow you. Yeah. Great stuff. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We're going to open it up now. If there's any questions, go ahead and throw up your hand uh, to ask Ken. And it looks like somebody just went mute. Martha, did you want to say something? No, I really just appreciate a lot of this. Um, I don't know. My husband and I are just talking a lot about how places like Burger King can't find staff members. And it's a lot of it. We think we're hoping that we won't have any issues finding staff. We're about to open somewhere, but we think a lot of it's because of how their staff is treated. So we're hoping, you know, we've both been at low paying jobs and we've been treated like crap and we want to try to, um, make it a good place for people to work. So um, a lot of what you said really resonates. Thanks. So when, if you don't mind my asking Martha, uh, what type of a place are you all opening? Um, we're, it's going to be like a fast casual barbecue restaurant. Ooh, this is going to be good already. Um, and my, because <laughs> <laughs> barbecue is the best. Now that, that being said, um, what is the one thing that you learned from bad management that makes you go, I am not ever going to do that when I have my own restaurant. Oh, 
you know, just like kind of treating stuff like they're disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's huge. It's um, huge. My husband worked for a guy who was like a typical restaurant chef who had like the really big like he would just have like outbursts in the kitchen all the time sure um and you know my husband and i are just like you know anytime we we do hire people to work for us when we get really busy with catering um but uh that's one thing i we we when we're in the kitchen together we if you didn't know that we were husband and wife people wouldn't know we're husband and wife because we just you know, have tasks and just try to do them. Um, I don't know. I, I think that I you think should people just feel appreciated. Write all those things down. Just write everything that you down that you remember and how that made you feel because it will help right. you to be the exact opposite. Um, scheduling was always my, my biggest one. Someone who, who would put out the schedule on Saturday night uh, for Monday and you had no way to plan your life because they waited until the absolute last minute before giving you your schedule. There's a hundred things that you've experienced. And the more you go back through your life and realize how you were done wrong, you'll do everybody right. No doubt. I see your hand. Sorry, did I cut you short, Martha? No, I'm good. (laughs) Thank you for your question and your engagement. Cash, you're up. Uh, Hi, Ken. Um, So my question is regarding rule four, Mm -hmm. uh, distance yourself socially. So you think that it's more based on that, even though you make unbiased decisions, the staff will see it as a biased decision uh, where you are, uh, you know, giving more uh, preference to the staff that you're hanging out with rather than the ones you're not. So the challenge becomes in perception versus intention because it's never, it has never uh, has anything to do with intention. You very well might've said, you know what? It was a really hard night. Let's go next door to the pub. I'll buy everybody around. Let's do that. But then doing that, you might not have invited somebody or somebody might have left 10 minutes early or for whatever reason, they now feel excluded or maybe they didn't work that night. And all you took out everybody on that Tuesday night, but your Wednesday crew, they didn't get to go out. And now it becomes, oh, well, got your favorites because anytime that you feel at that somebody is doing you wrong whether it's true or not you're going to look for reasons and it has nothing to do with your intention of trying to make connections with people and be welcoming Um, it has to do with the perception of it and that perception is what ends up getting you into hr follow-up question cash um, what if you're in the situation where like, okay, uh, you know, you do make these decisions to, you know, hang out socially and everything yeah. and everyone is, uh, you know, they're, they're fine if being invited, not being invited, but when it comes down to, um, stuff, uh, decisions related to work, do you think those will affect, uh, you know, the perceptions of the decisions you make, uh, regarding your work? I don't, I wouldn't say that I would, I would think that I would be able to hang out with everyone socially and it would be fine because I'm a professional and would make sure that that wouldn't affect anybody else. However, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it's going to be perceived. Um, a quick story that I put in the book was I was never that manager who hugged everybody, but everybody, every once in a while, you'd have somebody who'd come up to you and they put their arms out and they'd want to give you a hug. And I always felt it was weird to not hug them. So I came up with a rule that said, if you, if you initiate the hug, I'll hug you, but I'm not going to initiate the hug. You have to hug me first. And I thought that's genius. I'm good. That shouldn't be a problem. And then I got a call from HR. And I said, why? Because I'm not forcing hugs on anybody. I'm literally only hugging people that are offering hugs to me. And they said, that's the problem. Because somebody who didn't know that they had to offer a hug to you felt like you didn't like them. They said that you liked everybody that you hugged, but the people that you didn't hug, they felt like you didn't think that they were as good. And I felt about that big and had nothing to do with my intention It had everything to do with the perception. So you go out and you drink with a few people. Your intention is to just hang out and make friends. The perception is you've got to click. Thank you for the great question. Thank you for the answer. Jared, I see you with your hand up. Go for it. Okay. So my question is, Ken, do you have any advice for temporary managers people who have to fill the manager role for a predetermined shorter period of time. Uh, when I was, when I was a few years ago, I was working in a kitchen. I was basically the boss's right-hand man and he had to get surgery. So for three straight weeks, I was there open to close every single day, counting the money, managing people. Do you, is there any differing advice for people in that position? I love that you asked this question because my wife was uh, works in event sales and obviously event sales was one of the first things to go away during the pandemic. So she did, she worked floor management and uh, yeah. And she was a fill in manager. This is literally and like the definition of surprise. It, 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 it was 100%. You're she was, there you go. Surprise. It's exactly what she was doing. Um, the advice that I gave her and that I would get you is, uh, own all decisions and don't sidestep it. I would call it like the substitute teacher. We all had that substitute teacher come in and they'd be like, yeah, I'm the sub today. I don't really care. You guys just watch a science film. I don't care. And so everyone went, ah, I don't really give a shit. And it just became that blow off day in school and all, and everything, you know, went to hell. So if you're that person who just walks in and says, well, you know, I'm just holding it down. I'm doing whatever that person tells me to do. People walk all over you. They don't listen to you. And you're not learning anything about actually being a manager. And there is a benefit of learning how to manage people, whether it's in a restaurant or any other business. There is definitely that. But you can never do that as long as you're the person who's starting out the conversation by saying, I'm only here a short time and what I say doesn't really matter. So you must you must own all decisions. And that actually even is a big thing for when you have somebody above you that makes a decision that even if you don't agree with, you own it. And that took a long time for me to understand. An owner would make a decision on how to do stuff and I would think he would be wrong. And I would want to tell my staff that owner's wrong, but we have to do this. But the minute I do that, I I say, hi, I have no power. So you have to take ownership of decisions Otherwise, people will look past you. Awesome stuff. Great question. We have time for one more question. Bob, coming to you. 
Uh, hey, Ken, in in your travels of management, how many organizations have you run into that actually have a written ops manual? Uh, a written ops manual for managers? Yeah. One. Okay. Well, I, I, I think <laughs> I think question. I can. Well, okay. I, I, I could I can think of one because um, now I've I've been with several that have a 13 week program to where you start out in the kitchen and you spend a week in prep and then you do a lot, something in saute and you work all the way through all the stations. And then by the very end, I've I've definitely been a part of associations that have that structure, but I've I can't think of but one that really worked from a standpoint of what it was to touch tables, uh, interact with staff, do the actual day-to-day operations that, you know, and, and how to, and how to manage all the pressures behind it. Yeah. I can't help but think back to a recent interview I did with, um, uh, Mikey Saboro, Sorboro from Mikey's Late Night Slice, and a lot of the conversation had to do with building those layers between you and as many layers as possible between you and the work. And I think that this is one of the biggest things people miss is they they go through all that energy to, to develop checklists and processes for you know the. The, the the grill cook the oven cook the the salad station the the, the register and like all the different stations the server they have all these checklists and all these systems for all those frontline individuals but they never do the same thing for management they never create the checklist for the manager and they just expect the manager to know but just like it's it, that's just another station in the restaurant where they need checklists they need is that kind of what you're getting at bob like like yeah i remember we were talking about this the subject when we were Talking to Janjeev, uh, you know, in a real company, there's such a thing as a management training program. Mm-hmm. And it takes the lower level, you know, let's call it worker B, and trains them through the process of becoming a manager. Yeah. What are the, what are the 13 steps of service in regards to management? And the managers have. You know, they're a, they're a job description in itself, right? Mm-hmm. Why are they exempt from a training program? That is yeah, a very good question, Bob. There's no doubt. I mean, you you can see manuals all the time that explain what a figure eight is and how you're supposed to walk the floor and how you're supposed to use these checklists. But none of it truly focuses on the how to inspire and how to communicate effectively and what to do when you have issues with your staff who feel that their schedules are being done uh, incorrectly or that they're having other issues. Those aspects are just left up to instinct. And that's, that's that's always, that's that's tough. That's the seat of the pants management style. That's no doubt. It's the, you're going to go with, with the gut. And I mean, and that's where people, I mean, I, I absolutely have sat in a room where somebody had a military tattoo and the person across from him said, you know, and I, and I love the thing. Hey, you're in the military. I was too. And I really appreciate that. And they had this great rapport talking about their military service. But after the interview was over, I had to turn to that manager and say, 
you can't do that as much as you would love to make those connections. It you you can't point even though something's tattooed on something unless they bring that up to you. And even that you really you can't can touch on it because military service is part of the EOC protected class. And right. that and and then and the intention is so right. It's thank you for being you and thank you for your service and thank you. It's you're trying so desperately to do the right thing by your gut. But the reality is, is that you're putting yourself in a bad spot by just not knowing the the fundamentals of what you're allowed to ask and not. I had I had a, I I was in a restaurant location. I, I was CFO of these companies, so I, I normally didn't go to the to the locations unless it was new. And I was in a new one, and they had fired the general manager, and they asked me to go there and play general manager. And I said, "You really want me to do that?" Huh? <laughs> uh, their answer was, "Bob, there's twenty eight thousand dollars a day that goes in cash through that place. We need you to be there." Right. I said, "Yeah, okay." Uh, so I was there, and I'm doing what I'm doing, and uh, the, the beverage director comes downstairs, and she's in, like, in a panic. I go, whoa, 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 what's the matter? And she's just going, oh, we're getting ready for service, and this one's not here, and this one. She's going on and on about this stuff. And I got to get on the floor. And I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? No, Bob, I really love to talk to you, but I really got to get on the floor. I got to get on the floor. I said, explain something to me. Define going on the floor. What does that mean? You know what the response I got was? I have to go babysit. Yeah. I was looking for something a little more in depth. A little more inspiring. Like, uh, I have to go give an engaging pre-shift and then make sure to, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I got to have to go babysit. And I'm like, boy, that's the wrong attitude to have. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And that's – there are a lot of people who lost a lot of passion for being in this industry. But as I say, the people that are still in this industry now, ah, I've, I've met some really great people who weathered the storm and are here for the right reason. And hopefully there's a new crop of, of people much like yourself who believe in hospitality and a vision of being welcoming. Great questions. Great engagement. Thank you guys so much. Can any final words before we wrap things up and say goodbye? Uh, just my continued appreciation for you, Eric. Uh, it seems every time I have a conversation with you, uh, people talk to me about it and I just, I, I love what you do. Thank you. And I just, and I just think that you're, you're exceptional. And anytime that you want to talk, I'm always, always around. Thank you so much, Ken. The pleasure is truly mine. And how can we connect with you if we enjoyed today's conversation, if we're interested in getting your book? I know you were giving away a, a virtual copy of your book. Is that window closed? Uh, the It is closed, but I will say that if anybody wants to email me, you can email me at um, info at Corgan Hospitality, and that's K-O-R-G-E-N Hospitality. Um, and you can, you'll see my website. Uh, if you email me there, um, I'll send you a PDF of it for free. I'm, I have no problem in passing it out. I want as many people to have the information as possible. You can also download it on, uh, Amazon for on Kindle for 99 cents. Um, and if you, and I, that's always, it's always going to be 99 cents. I, I do that purposely. And then the book is the book and you can get it from, uh, every major 
bookseller, and there's even an audible version if you want to hear this voice for five and a half hours, which mm. not even my wife wants to hear this voice for five and a half hours, so I can't imagine it. But amazingly enough, a couple hundred people have bought it. So and we'll link to it in the show notes too. We'll also have Ken's contact information over in the show notes. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash eight two eight. We'll have a summary of today's discussion over there as well as those links and contact information. Ken, there is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. You as well, Eric. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Cheers. Well, there you go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest again, Ken McGeary, for coming back on the show for a second time to dive dive deeper into this book, The Surprise Restaurant Manager, and to cover those six rules for first-time managers. I know I found value today, and I hope you all did too. So if you guys wish you could be a part of these conversations, you can. All you got to do is head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com, create a profile, join the network, be a part of the conversation, if 30 bucks a month is too much for you, that's a dollar a day to have access to other restaurant owners across the nation and my past guests and access to the tools, technology, and resources they're recommending. Uh, and just really a support group is really what you're paying for, a dollar a day to have this support group. If that's too much for you, shoot me an email, eric at restaurantstoppable.com. I will get you a link for a 30-day trial just to get in there and see what it's all about before you commit because uh, I want you to experience it. And I want to meet you. I really want to meet you. I want to learn more about you and find out how we can serve you in the network. Uh, so in the network this week, actually, I should say next week, if you're listening to this on Thursday, we have David Scott Peters joining us to cover budgeting. We're going to be going deep into budgeting. That's on Wednesday, the 22nd at 9 a.m. Eastern time. And then we have Chris Dimmick, same day at 2 p.m. Eastern time. He's joining us to do some peer mentoring. So peer mentoring basically is your opportunity to connect with my guests a week to two weeks after I get them on the show they come and they hang out in the network and they offer some advice to you so you can bring your questions you can reflect on their episodes you can ask them the questions you wish I did it's pretty rad and I'd love to have you guys be a part of it and uh Lots of cool things, other things happening in the network. Uh, I think I'm going to try to be much more intentional with the content. I really, the whole purpose of me starting a restaurant unstoppable podcast was to learn from successful restaurateurs so I could be successful one day opening my own restaurant and to use this podcast to be the, the prime to my engine to, to, to help me get the, the ball rolling. And I'm getting to that point where I have a little excess income and I can slowly start to invest in my own vision. And I want to use the network to literally go to the people I would go to if I was opening a restaurant tomorrow. So if you're in the startup stage of opening a restaurant now is the perfect time to be a part of the conversation because you can go through this journey with me all right guys until next time peace out